Hello, and welcome to Smoke and Shadow. I'm your host, Victoria Sadowski, and this is my second take of recording this because I already recorded it once, and my mic was off, so here we are. <laughs> and I might have uh, overdid the research on sort of the preface to this topic that we're going to dive into today, which is occultism throughout the Italian Renaissance. And you'll, you'll see why in a second what I mean when I say I overdid the research because I wanted to sort of give a perspective on the things that led up to the Italian Renaissance that influenced it heavily. And it's a lot. It's a lot to cover, but I tried to keep it as short and sweet as possible. Didn't really succeed, but you know what? We're doing our best. And as always, if you have sources of this time period or of this topic that you find important that I don't mention... You can always email those to smokeandshadowpodcast at gmail.com. And we're just going to dive right in because, again, this is my second time doing this. So we have to talk about the rise of monotheism in Western Europe. And we're going to start right off with talking about the death of Jesus. So Jesus dies and his Christian followers sort of split into mainly uh, three different groups. I didn't write down the names, but, you know, Catholic, Gnostic, or Agnostic. And one other one I can't remember. But that's not the point. That's not why we're here. And Jesus dies around 30 or 33 CE. Moving right along. Uh, Julius Caesar dies at the hands of the Senate during the Gallic Wars at uh, 44 CE. Rome now holds most of Western Europe and some of Mesopotamia after waves of campaigns. And then we move on to Commodus and his reign during... 180 to 192 CE, and this was sort of seen as a marker for the end of Rome's golden period and the beginning of the empire's slow demise. So Commodus was fucking batshit and was basically the second Caligula. He would just do crazy, insane sociopathic things, so you can probably see how his reign didn't, you know, no one wanted him, they wanted him out, and this was definitely, like, foreboding for the empire. Although during this time, Septimius Severus thrived under his reign, and after Commodus's death, would eventually rise to become emperor after, um, I want to say, like, two wars. There's a lot of war going on, but, like, two very specific ones against people who were also fighting to be emperor. A little later, we have Marcus Aurelius Claudius, also known as Gothicus, from... 214 to 270 CE, he defeated the Goths and fought against the Almani Germanic tribes. So the Goths, you need to pay attention to the Goths because they're going to come back, but they're already sort of established at this point, but they're mainly just a Germanic tribe. Now we move on to Diocletian's reign, which stabilizes the empire and marks the end of the crisis of the third century from around 286 to 305 CE. This is where Rome splits into Eastern and Western empires. The Western Empire succeeded by Maximus and Galerius in the East. By the way, all these guys around this time are persecuting Christians like crazy. They're hunting them down. That is something to keep in mind. And from here on out, we're going to focus on the Western Roman Empire. And after Maximus, there's Constantinus and then his son Constantine in tandem with Severus II. Although I think Severus II was more of an antagonist in Constantine's sort of political world. And I think he ended up killing Severus at some point. So Constantine's reign begins 
He becomes baptized as Christian after Rome's Christian persecutions and creates the Edict of Milan in 313 CE. And this pretty much makes it perfectly legal for Christians to be Christians in Rome and there's no more persecutions. Constantine didn't make Christianity Rome's, like the new religion of Rome. He didn't do that. He just was baptized as Christian and then made it so that Christians weren't being persecuted. But paganism was still the main religion of the Roman Empire at this time. However, this did lay the groundwork for Rome and Gallic Europe to follow suit. Now we're going to talk about the post-classical period and the major classical civilizations of the era, the Han Dynasty in China ending in 220 CE, the Western Roman Empire ending in 476 CE, the Gupta Empire in India ending in 550 CE, and the Sassanian Empire ending in 651 CE. A lot of the major empires are falling, which is sort of causing a strange period of collapse. Although this is the rise of the Goths and the Franks during the migration period from 300 to 500 CE, around this time they're still practicing paganism, but Christianity is kind of trickling in a little bit. When the Huns invade Gaul, they push the Goths and the Franks into Roman territory, which cripples Roman forces, and they have to then rely on the Goths and the Franks. So the Romans, the Goths, and the Franks all unite together to fight off the Huns. Although this wouldn't last long because Rome then breaks out into two civil wars, uh, one following after the other, and one of which where the Gothic leader Alric forms a rebellion during the reign of Honorius because, you know war. And here's the beginning of the early Middle Ages in Europe, aka the Dark Ages from 500 to 1000 CE. And this is a period in which Roman influence had suddenly been not necessarily retracted, but it wasn't being enforced. The Romans were very good about establishing their culture in other places, and now that that sort of force wasn't there, the Romanization that they had imprinted on other cultures was still there, but there was no more of you know, no one telling them to be Romanized. There wasn't that sort of force behind it. And now the Gothic tribes that were settled in Celtic areas that had been barren after Rome's brutal conquests began to migrate and they split. So half migrated to the Italic Peninsula once Rome fell, and those were the Ostrogoths. And then you have the other half, which migrated to the Iberian Peninsula, which is Spain and Portugal. Um, and those were the Visigoths. The Franks had basically held out from uh, waves of Roman campaigns in what is now Eastern Germany and Western Poland. And although they fought mainly against the Romans, there was a lot of Romanization in their culture after the fall of the empire. And thanks to, you know, no longer having the Roman presence in that area, as well as still benefiting from Romanization, these tribes eventually evolve into kingdoms. The Kingdom of Italy still has a functioning Roman Senate somehow during the reign of Ottoker. However, uh, that doesn't last very long, and Theodoric the Great marks the beginning of the Ostrogothic Italy. So Italy is sort of absorbed by the Ostrogoths. King Clovis of the Franks eventually converts to Christianity, sort of like how Constantine did, and encourages his subjects to do the same. And this kicks Christianization of Europe into high gear. Also, of course, the Saxons are going nuts uh, in the Northwest, looting and pillaging like crazy, as they do. In all these different 
tribes now becoming kingdoms and that sort of transition after the fall of the empire sets the stage for what we now know as Europe today and all the countries that we recognize now. Also to back that up, Paris, the city of Paris does pop up around this time and is established as a city in what would become France. So Paris comes before France, in case you were wondering. Because Rome's uh, former trade systems have now broken down over time, along with these small developing kingdoms, this sort of helps feudalism to come about. And now we're at the High Middle Ages from 1000 to 1200 CE, and the Holy Roman Empire starts to build in Germanic territory, so where the Franks are, kind of. There is now a rapid increase in populations across Europe, and the beginnings of European urbanization starts to happen. And this is also where the Christian Crusade starts, so get ready. Christianized Europe is called upon by the Catholic Church to go to war with the Turks. Uh, Islamic influence takes hold in the Iberian Peninsula, and Spain becomes Al-Aldalus, I believe. I think that's how you pronounce it. For a while, anyway. This time is a great clashing of Christian, Hebrew, and Islamic cultures all at once. So all the Abrahamic cultures are now kind of re-clashing. And Gothic architecture was flourishing, let me tell you. And now we're at the uh, crisis of the late Middle Ages in 1250. And so all of that good good that was happening before is now becoming counterintuitive and now hindering people. And uh, because of the Holy Roman Empire, feudalism was sort of a little bit on hold, and that doesn't last very long. So people are now not bathing. So, of course, the Black Plague breaks out, and there's a little ice age that kills a lot of people, and also the Great Famine happens in 1315. So the population drops back down again, and of course, the Holy Roman Empire, because of this, is declining, therefore feudalism sort of coming back into play again. And the Western Schism happens, which if you don't know about that, it's where there's a Pope in the East and a Pope in the West. And they're like, I'm the Pope. No, I'm the Pope. And then they duke it out and it's whatever. And this is the shit show that starts the Italian Renaissance. Yay. So, yeah, lovely. We love that. And now we can actually start talking about the topic. So, the rise of occultism at the beginning of the Renaissance from 1300 to 1400, let's say. And as we get into this, there's three main principles that you're going to want to keep in mind that are sort of rejections of medieval and the Dark Age cultural norms. The first one being humanism, which is a revival of ancient Greek and Roman thought prior to Christianization. And it focuses more on the human rather than the divine and practices rational thought and emphasizing common good within people. It is basically a calm rejection to God-centered way of thought. So people are more thinking about their lives and their agendas and how they affect the world rather than just doing what they're told. The second principle is individualism, focusing more on the actions of one rather than the whole. Uh, one's actions no longer reflected upon their family or community and burdens were carried alone. Rejection of group behavior or hive mind mentality and emphasis on the freedom of action and an individual's accomplishments were greatly valued rather than people who used their family name to get their way through life. That was no longer seen as like, you know, respected rather than someone who's like made their own sort of legacy. And the third principle being virtue, which is the achievement of full human potential through well-trained ability 
an individual harnessing skills that contributed to the state while mastering their own respective fields. Understanding that a good citizen did not make a good man, revamp of Aristotle philosophy. And just a side note, this idea was also a little bit hyper-masculine. Uh, the word virtue derives from the Latin word virtus, meaning manliness. Although women were also thought to achieve virtues as well. But we're going to want to keep that in mind, the hyper-masculine aspect, because like that does play a part throughout the Renaissance, as well as how occultism is viewed later on. So Italian trade is kicking off. And it's sort of, Italy is in a great spot for trade because it's sort of a divider between the Western and the Eastern worlds. So Italy is being sort of used from Eastern exports going into the Western world. The Western world is taking a lot from the Eastern world right now. The Silk Road's kind of going on. Marco Polo somewhere in Kublai Khan's army. I don't fucking know. And this sort of revamp of trade begins a massive growth in the sharing of arts, sciences, and philosophy. And if you were sort of of high stature, if you were a statesman, if you were a wealthy merchant, something that I think we still do now that started around this time was using these arts and these craftsmen to sort of build up our egos. So what I mean by that is, say a statesman had a business meeting and he was inviting over his colleagues. He wants to get it across to his colleagues that he's better than them and has a lot more than them by getting the best artwork, the best, you know, furniture, the best anything. So art was definitely used by the elite to intimidate each other. And that's why this was sort of seen as an art boom. Artists were being commissioned to do all sorts of things around this time for that reason. Although there were other reasons, mainly a lot of it was used as a sort of message by the elite to sort of be like, yeah, I'm better than you. Because a lot of these people who were commissioning artists, a lot of them probably didn't actually have a great passion for the arts they were probably just trying to look better than their cohorts or co-workers or whomever these italic cities were built on the ruins of ancient rome itself causing locals to become more intrigued in their heritage because it was literally right in front of them and still is it's still kind of, like a lot of it's still intact so you have to think too about like the infrastructure that's there now and how much of it was there around the italian renaissance and they probably had a lot more ruins to go through that we probably don't now. Also, the fall of the Byzantine Empire happens and a lot of people are fleeing to Rome and they're bringing a lot of their culture with them, which is sort of mixing into this interesting melding pot of information. And we need to briefly talk about Petrarch, who was considered the father of humanism, and he collected and transcribed many ancient Greek and Roman texts. And the people who are fleeing during the fall of the Byzantine era into Italy, they had a lot of Greek texts with them. A lot of it got brought to Italy that people like Petrarch were then transcribing so that it could be available to more people. And this began a sort of reflection of ancient religions and new philosophical ideas paired with circulating ancient texts cause Italian and European elite and upper class citizens to sort of re-engage in ancient polytheism through this like Christian scope. A lot of them were still Christian but there's a lot of cultures that are sort of colliding right now. And people were no longer doing things just because the king or God told them to do it. They were doing it out of practicing individualism. So this intrigue into the ancient world was also pushed by individualism because it gave people the freedom to do what they wanted to do. There's also a resurgence in 
hermeticism and neoplatonic ceremonial magic during this time. So you can start to see how the occult is trickling back into what has, you know, been established as a Christian society. And now I'm going to briefly dive into an individual who I'm going to also later dive into a bit more in depth. Giovanni Pico della Merandola writes the Oration on the Dignity of Man, which is viewed widely as the manifesto of the Renaissance. And it has a lot of humanism and hermetic sort of philosophy within it. Uh, Pico was sort of seen as the founder of the Christianized Kabbalah, which Kabbalah's origins are Jewish, which inspired Western esotericism. He also practiced extreme syncretism, a blending of numerous traditions involving mythology and religion, although later on in his life, not so much, but we'll get to that later. First, we're going to talk about specific grimoires, the Picatrix being one of them, which I think that's a fucking cute-ass name. Okay. Although it's not the original name. not I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. But this is an Arabic grimoire devoted to astral magic written in the 12th century and was called some other name. Again, I cannot pronounce but was later translated into Latin and circulated in Europe during the 13th century. The second grimoire I want to mention is the Sefer Raziel Ha-Malak, supposedly a book revealed to Adam by the angel Raziel. Immersed in Jewish Kabbalah lore, it references Adam and Eve very heavily. Of course, it's about Adam receiving, you know, knowledge. It is mainly comprised of things having to do with natural knowledge, spells, and prayers. And this was all supposedly taught to Adam after Eve eats the apple because, yeah. Also, again, important to keep these things in mind of, like, how women are viewed. Just, just, just got you got to keep in mind for what comes later. Some of you already know what comes later, <laughs> but we'll get there. And this book was written in the 13th century. Historians still say parts of the text, though, hail from much older ages. A lot of the mysticism that was going around was mainly due to Christian, Islamic, and Jewish lore all sort of colliding during a time where ancient texts were being rediscovered and translated. Therefore, people began researching the Abrahamic cult's polytheistic origins. There was some pushback by the church and some scrutiny at first, but not so much because of how strongly the movement went. But the church doesn't stay silent for long, as they tend to do, so keep that in mind. And now I'm going to go over some of the things people were practicing during this time. The first one being, of course, necromancy, uh, reviving the dead through ceremonial magic. and was still a little bit considered demonic even for the time and was mainly practiced by the elite. Geomancy, uh, divination where one casts sand, dirt, or stones onto the ground to read the shapes that it makes uh, while using this sort of chart that I guess people used at the time. And this was the most popular form of divination during the Renaissance. Hydromancy, which, oh my god, I love hydromancy. Uh, <laughs> it originated in ancient Babylonia. It was popular during the Byzantine Empire. It is similar to scrying, where water is used as a reflective surface to bring on visions. This was thought to be witchcraft in the medieval era. But I do have to point out, I have to do an entire episode on just hydromancy. Because... It's everywhere. Like, the Druids were supposedly doing it, too. There were people doing this sort of scrying, reflection, sort of vision trance all over the world for thousands of years. And it's an interesting history. Now we've got aromancy, which is tossing sand or dirt into the air and seeing the patterns the dust forms in. Uh, also used in thunderstorms, shooting stars, and cloud shapes. So if you've ever, you know, cloud-gazed, you're performing aromancy and the church will come for you. 
They won't. Not today. But maybe back then they did. Uh, pyromancy. One of the world's oldest forms of divination. Seeing signs, omens, or messages from the divine through flames. Uh, chiromancy, which is palm reading. Scapulomancy, which is bone tossing or bone burning. Uh, using animal bones to make predictions based on the sort of cracks that form uh, in the bones. And then we've got uh, dreammancy, which was actually a later divination practice articulated and studied by occult scholars like Agrippa, who we will go into in a second. These thoughts and practices began around the 1300s, mainly beginning with Germanic Jews creating texts on their own ancient folklore during a time where the West was beginning to rapidly evolve. And these things really gained popularity, though, in the 14 to 1500s. And now I'm going to sort of list off some of the occultists and magi that are some of the most commonly known. We've got Albertus Magnus, who is also known as St. Albert. He was probably one of the more influential occultists and actually would influence with his work later occultists towards the end of this period. Nicholas Flamel, who was believed to have discovered and used the Philosopher's Stone, also known as the Sorcerer's Stone. And he's also believed to have never died. Um, that folklore sort of came after he died. But there are supposedly records where they dug up his coffin, him and his wife's coffin. There was no bodies inside. He's also associated with the Comte Saint-Germain. But that's a whole different thing. We'll get into it another time. Now we've got Roger Bacon, which is probably one of the more uh, famous guys around that time. And then we have Henrik Cornelius Agrippa, who I mentioned a little bit before. And I'm going to dive into him a little bit deeper as well. In sort of a disclaimer, there were magi and occultists leading up to this point, even throughout like the Dark Ages. But they weren't seen through a very positive light, especially with the rise of the Crusades. The Renaissance sort of served as a time where there was less judgment and these things were, in some contexts, encouraged. And with that... Oh my god. And now, the faded fall of the Renaissance and the rise of the Inquisition. And this is covering sort of uh, 1480 to 600 CE. And the two guys I mentioned before, Giovanni Pico and uh, Cornelius Agrippa, we're going to sort of go over them again. Because they their lives cover a very particular time frame for when there's just this sudden cultural change and the church kicks up its antagonism towards what they consider to be heresy. And first we're going to start with Giovanni Pico who lived from 1463 to 1494. And so Giovanni was viewed by the public in a more positive light than Agrippa would be later, but they both had very similar social statures in life. He was most known for holding debates with people of all different sorts of origins and cultures over his own work. So he would hold these debates a lot of the time after publishing his work. One of the works being his 900 Thesis, uh, which was halted by Pope Innocent VIII, who had all of the documents reviewed and investigated by the church. And a few things happened, but ultimately all of it would be banned and the church would burn every copy. And this was the first book that was banned by the church during this period. So this was seen as like not a good sign. This is very foreboding for the occult world. 
shortly after Giovanni's imprisonment was ordered by the papacy. With the help of King Charles VIII, Lorenzo de' Medici helped Giovanni get released. This experience would eventually cause him to retract a lot of his former interests in the ancient occult and become a monk under Friar Savonarola. So kind of what I mentioned earlier of a lot of the stuff that he did in his life wouldn't really stick was because the guy was terrified at this point. Like the church had come after him and he was like, oh my God, like this is, and he was the first one during this movement where everyone was doing this. He was the first person that was targeted by the church and it just scared the crap out of him so bad that he didn't want to do it anymore, which, you know, people would end up doing. So now we have Agrippa. His life and Giovanni's lives overlap, so they're alive around the same time. However, Agrippa's a lot younger, so he sort of covers more of the fall of this Renaissance era. And it happens pretty quickly if it can be covered by two men who lived around the same time. Agrippa favorited the teachings of Albertus Magnus, one of the occultists I mentioned before, and he supposedly joined a secret society on the occult in Paris, essentially occult. He had a military background and was knighted under Maximilian I of the Holy Roman Empire. And he received the patronage of Margaret of Austria, the governor of the Habsburg Netherlands, which is when he began his academic career. He served many of the aristocracy when following Maximilian to Italy in 1511, but his views would end up clashing with Christian monks in that area, mainly due to one dispute where his defense of a woman accused of witchcraft got him in trouble with an inquisitor named Nicholas Savin. This actually forced him to resign as the town orator of the city of Metz. After the death of his patron, the Duchess of Savoy, Agrippa went under the protection of the Archbishop of Cologne. He began producing works that got him in hot water with the Inquisition throughout the rest of his life and sort of kind of struggled to evade persecution, but never actually had any formal trials against him. But for the rest of his life, he would be protesting the witch trials going on throughout Europe. And so that being said, we now have to briefly talk about the witch trials a little bit more. So the church's inquisition began with Pope Innocent VIII and snowballed over the course of 100 years, but would continue on for around three to 400 years. Men like Giovanni and Agrippa were certainly scrutinized. However, Pico merely experienced the beginning of what was to come, whereas Agrippa spent half his life arguing it and evading it at the same time. However, witch trials themselves greatly targeted young women of any class or background, and you could say, like, well, definitely more poor girls were, you know, being killed, but there were also women of aristocracy being targeted as well, and they were not safe from what was going on. Over the course of 300 years, 80,000 people were killed for being accused of heresy, 80% of them being women and 60% of them being children. So, yes, men were killed, boys were killed, but you can see how there is a demographic that is being targeted throughout this. For some reason, because little girls aren't actually fucking causing problems. They're little girls. They're not doing anything. And these trials were seen as a resurgence in conservative medieval values without the former pagan influence. So the Christianization is now at its peak. This is where it really becomes what we know of it today. And of course, you know, would 
give birth to the trials that happened in Scotland, in France, in the UK, and later on in Massachusetts, which is where I'm originally from. And uh, let me tell you a little something now that we're towards the end here and we're at the reflecting part. This idea of unorthodox or untraditional women, women who don't fit the norm, is still kind of, there's pieces of it that you can still see today in primarily what is white post-colonial New England. And I think a lot of people, when they think of New England, they think of like posh, like liberal elite, but like, it's really fucked. Like, New England's so fucked. Especially when it comes to how women are viewed, I think still. Definitely in recent years, it's gotten a lot better. And I'm just talking about the past decade. Like, it's gotten a lot better this past decade from when I was a child. And I'm not very old. I'm in my 20s. But I just remember being a kid and there was just some things you didn't do. And if you did them, which I certainly did, uh, there were consequences that I don't think kids should have for those actions. They weren't, they're not bad. They're not, it's just pursuing interest. And due to how weird your interests are, and if that follows the narrative of what a traditional girl should be, if that doesn't follow that, then bad things happen. And it stems from this shit, especially with like how it forms, how women are treated on the streets and school and all these things at home, even at home comes from this time where, you know, you had to be real fucking careful with what you were doing as a girl growing up because most girls didn't live past 12. And that sort of comes from, again, going back to what I prefaced earlier, the Romanization of Gaul, because Gallic tribes, they all vary differently in terms of culture from like Celtic to Germanic. But a lot of them, especially further west, you know, they had warrior women Vikings. Like there were women on the front lines of battle there were rules against rape. Like, if you were a rapist, you were murdered brutally. And there's just things that you, like that went away with Romanization. And Roman women, you know, were not treated that way. They were treated as the consorts of man. And the story of uh, the Roman general Arminius sort of involves a lot of these topics especially concerning his wife, Thusnelda. And they did a Netflix show on this, actually. And it was so fucking good. Oh, my God, I binged that. And you definitely get a sense of, like, the Roman idea versus Germanic culture. And there, you, you definitely know there's misogyny in these tribes as well. But women also culturally have inherited a different attitude than that of the Roman women. Roman women are expected to, you know, serve their husbands, whereas... That is kind of sometimes what's going on in Germanic tribes, but also if a woman's going to stand her ground and say, I'm going to fight in a war, not a lot of people are going to really get in her way as they would in Rome. So yeah, all this stuff sort of happens throughout these ages up until the Italian Renaissance sort of sets a weird stage for women. It puts them in a very weird position that then leads to a blown out femicide. So yeah, it's not just about the attitude towards occultism, it's also about the attitude towards young women because not just in a Christian society, but in a Roman Christian society, women didn't really benefit too much in comparison to men. And also this is still like an area influenced by pagan values from Gaul. So young women were probably the most likely to challenge societal norms, which could 
speak to why they were targeted. Because again, a lot of this new revamp and old way of thought sort of revitalized people's idea of like, why do we do these things? And it made people question things a little bit more, which the church and government didn't really like. So yeah, that's that's the end of my feminist speech, I swear. But yeah, it's just wild to me that all three Abrahamic cultures sort of had this like polite clash, I want to say, where people started revisiting all of their origins as well as the polytheistic origins of a wide array of different cultures. It was a, a long time in terms of like, you know, a lifespan. It was many years. Still, it's a very short pocket in time compared to what was going on before and after. Because again, you have like Dark Ages and High Middle Ages, which, you know, were a lot more conservative in comparison. And there wasn't a lot of like, I want to say, cultural, scientific, and spiritual evolution compared to that of the Renaissance. And then you immediately have after the Inquisition and or witch trials. And that was definitely seen as well as a dark mark on European history because people were terrified all the time. And you hear about, you know, the late 16, early 17 into like 1800s, like before the uh, spiritual enlightenment of the 1800s. Those could also be seen as dark times because people were generally afraid of a lot of different things. They were afraid of, you know, the dark forces that the church was warning about, but they were also afraid of getting on the bad side of the church. It was not a time that is, it's kind of romanticized now because we are fucked up as people. And a good example of that is the sort of romanticization of Henry VIII doing literally whatever the fuck he wanted. A lot of women got killed for that, too. Just him marrying people and deciding, never mind. And, you know, one of the wives that he just decided to divorce, it wasn't just a simple divorce. Because of the objections that Martin Luther brings to the Catholic Church, the Christian world alone is sort of now uh, kicking up turbulence. It's, it's not going well just for the Christians, because now there's the Protestant Reformation and a new sort of Christianity is now coming to fruition, which the Catholics aren't liking. They're not into it. However, people like Martin Luther are pointing out things that just don't make sense to them with the Catholic Church, and that's like the 99 problems. And one of those being, why do you need to stay married for life? Why does the Catholic Church have authority over how long a couple remains together? It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't mean you're any lesser more holy it's just you know that's that's individual problems like why does the church have to do anything with that and as these new ideas are sort of hitting the christian world um henry the eighth hears about it and is like huh divorcing my wife that sounds great so he he converts to you know being protestant and that just that just set some shit off in England. And not just that, it's happening all over Europe where the Christians are taking sides Protestant versus Catholic and sort of duking it out. So this time period is just like, it's not a good time for anyone. No one's winning. No one's winning. Uh, people for a while are still being persecuted by the church and 
while that's going on, the Protestants and the Catholics are going to fucking town killing each other. So this is pretty much a dark time. It's not a great time for anyone at all. But then his daughter, uh, who would become the Queen of the Golden Age, Elizabeth, was also Protestant like her father. And that sort of allows occultism to come back into play a little bit, but only a little bit. It's still kind of scrutinized. And then, of course, in the late 1700s, you have scientific research starting to pick up speed alongside a new spiritualist movement that kind of takes hold mainly in the 1800s. Also, weird thing, the last person to be tried as a witch was actually around World War II by this woman in England. From what I can tell <laughs> from some of the podcasts that have covered it, uh, That's Why We Drink has covered it. If you look up like pictures, because there are photographs of this woman in her seances, uh, it looks like she's a charlatan. <laughs> and it's just what it looks like, you know? There's some weird stuff, there's some creepy stuff about it that gets her in trouble, and which is why she gets tried, because she foresees a ship going down or something before it ever gets released to the public. But I don't know. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff about that that's very interesting. And she was the last person to be tried. So yeah, that's my that's my story on occultism through the Italian Renaissance, even though we covered way more than just that. Because once again, I went a little overboard. And now, sources. First source being Decadent Emperor's Power and Depravity in 3rd Century Rome by George C. Brower. Three books of occult philosophy by Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, which yes, they do have actual physical copies of their works that are out and are public domain, so I did use some of these. The World of the Italian Renaissance by E.R. Chamberlain. Egyptian Secrets, White and Black Art for Man and Beast by Albertus Magnus. Um, also, Wiki definitely helped with sort of helping me timeline everything, because this was a lot of information. <laughs> that I needed to really get like a, a straight chronological order of when a lot of things were happening all at the same time. And then there's these periods where nothing really was happening. And it's just, you know, hard to really gather in a straight line. So I did use Wikipedia a lot for that. Not that I don't usually, like I do use Wikipedia to just look up a quick thing, but like I definitely like relying on scholarly source material or like books of people who've studied it. Just because you get a more rounded understanding of the situation, the more sources you have. And Wikipedia gets a bad rap, though, I feel, because I use it kind of like a library. <laughs> so I'll find, like, interesting information, and if it doesn't have a strong enough source, I will look up specifically that sentence and try to figure out if it's accurate enough. And if it's I don't find anything, I just discard it. But if I find something that has a very, like, solid source, I will then find the source, find the document or the book, and then read it. If I don't already have a book, that would apply to the topic. So, in case you needed to know. So, yeah, thank you for listening. And if you're interested, you can find me on Instagram at Smoke and Shadow Podcast. And there you can find a link to my Patreon. And if you choose to donate, thank you very much. It is super helpful. And again, if you have 
sources you want me to use, or even if you have a topic that you want to suggest to me, you can email that stuff to smokeandshadowpodcast at gmail.com. And with that, until next time.